Hi there, everybody. It's Luke. I have some exciting news for you just in time for the holidays, and that is that Livewire season passes go on sale tomorrow. We have got some incredible shows coming up this spring. It is our 15th anniversary, and we are bringing in the best and brightest and most interesting guests out there. And I know you are going to want to be at these shows, but the thing of it is, Livewire sells out now, and it sells out early. We're excited about that. Like, that means it's working. But it also means it can be hard to get a ticket to these shows, particularly the season of our 15th anniversary. And so if you buy a season pass, you will be guaranteed a ticket for every show, even ones that are sold out. And you get a significant discount from the cost of individual tickets. If you want to get pre-sale access to Livewire, join as a member and you're going to get immediate access to season passes. Plus, you get 15% off the general public price for your season pass. Does that make sense? So if you sign up to be a member, you get an even better deal on the season pass. How can I do this, you're asking yourself, Luke? Well, here's the answer. You go to livewireradio.org to find out about becoming a member, about getting a season pass. You can see our guest lineup. The whole kit and caboodle. It's over there at livewireradio.org. And we will see you this spring. Welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We have an excellent radio show in store for you. Check out these guests we have. Uh, a, A favorite of Livewire, Mr. John Hodgman. The hilarious writer, the incredible actor, the uh, one-time Delta Diamond Platinum flight status member who who used a trip to our show Livewire to get his final miles in. Uh, Luckily, this time we had him out. He was not just using us for frequent flyer purposes. No, he was here to talk about his great book called Vacation Land, uh, which is wonderful, and gets to the topic of hand-me-downs, because somebody handed John and his wife a house, a vacation home. And so we're going to talk about that. On the subject of hand-me-downs, we've also got R.J. Young, a fabulous writer who who inherited a gun as part of the family he was marrying into and then had to learn all about how that works. And then we've got Fabi Reyna and Fabi Reyna's incredible band, Savila. So this is going to be a really fun episode of the show. We're going to get it started right now. Like I said, The theme for the week is hand-me-downs. I was thinking about that when I got on stage and started talking to our announcer, Elena Passarello, at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Check this out. Um, I am the oldest of seven kids. So even though I grew up in a, um, you know, family didn't have a ton of money, I didn't ever get any hand-me-downs because, like, all of that was sort of downriver from me. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you, though, Elena, that I had, like, I could count on one hand the number of items of clothing that I had that were actually from, a like, a new store. Like, we got everything from rummage sales, fill in the, you know, fill the bag sales. Like, my mom was the person who would go to the rummage sale and then wait until the people were just trying to leave who were running it. And then she'd be like, how much to take this stuff off your hand? And they'd be like, we'll pay you. Yeah. Please just leave with this crap. I've seen my mom talk someone down off of socks that were 18 cents. Um, But the weirdest thing happened when I got into high school. I lived in Seattle, and this was in the... 
the early 90s, and this is when grunge came around, and Ooh. all of a sudden, all my rich friends were like, do you know about any thrift stores? Do you know where we can get any old flannel with holes in it? And I was like, way ahead of you. So I was like, all of a sudden I went uh, from being this very nervous, kind of embarrassed kid about the clothing scene to being like, I will tell you where it all is. I know every nook and cranny. Oh, that's such of, a good skill to have. I wish I would have had this whole thing unfold a little earlier in my life though, because in a story that I think I've even told on this show before, when I went to seventh grade, I didn't have anybody older than me telling me like what was in or out of fashion. And so I got these jeans somewhere that I thought were pretty styly. The thing uh -oh. was they were stirrup jeans. Did, and no one told they, me those were at even, that. Did they make those for guys? Ice skaters, I guess, male ice skaters. <laughs> Maybe Prince, Prince probably has a pair. <laughs> Let me just say, back in those days, we thought of gender as being less fluid. Yeah. So it was noted that I wore these very tight stirruped jeans with fully in the stirrups. I was like, these are great. These things stay exactly where I want them to. What was your shoe game? Like, what was it just a nice ballet flat or? No. <laughs> I, I sort of, I, I went through, like, I was very embarrassed about the stirrups and, and stirrup jeans, and then I thought, whatever, like, you're a kid, doesn't matter. Nobody remembers that kind of stuff. Sure. These embarrassments that we had as kids, they're not as big a deal to anyone else as they are to us. And right. then, I don't know, maybe five years after high school, I ran into someone at the mall, and they were like, oh, were you the guy who wore stirrup jeans? Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm still, I'll be honest, I'm still recovering from that. <laughs> I say you got to bring them back. I think it's time, 2019, the year of the male stirrup pants. Well, I mean, to be honest, I, th I think I'm very sure we're there now in the sense, and this is one of the great things about the world we now live in, is that uh, we're way less hung up on things being male or female, or that's right. for girls or that's for boys. I just wish that would have hit in 1986. Yeah. You're just before your time, Burbank. We actually have somebody who's about to come on stage who was the recipient of a kind of very intense hand-me-down. It was a gun. It was given to him by his father-in-law as sort of a welcome to the family gesture. So he accepted it, and he wrote about it, and it's all in this amazing book of his. It's called Let It Bang, A Black Man's Reluctant Odyssey Into Guns. Please welcome R.J. Young to Livewire. RJ, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for telling me all about stirrup jeans. Gonna go get them. Yeah. <laughs> um, where did you grow up, and what relationship, if any, did you have with guns or the idea of guns when you were a kid? So I grew up in a place called Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, moved to Tulsa when I was 13 years old. I've lived there ever since. It's home now. And I didn't know anything about guns at the time, except that they could get you killed. They were the kind of things that cops had. Um, folks in the military. I didn't need them. You know, I'm a city dude. I played football. And I was dating a woman, name is Lizzie, who is from a place called Coweta, which is in rural Oklahoma. Met her father, Charles. I shook his hand, first thing that that man did was bolt. So, so her dad comes back, I read this in the book, her dad comes back with this enormous gun and like hands it to you. What goes through your mind 
when you're meeting your girlfriend's dad for the first time and he brings you this enormous gun? He was holding it out like you would an heirloom, right? It wasn't an heirloom. It was brand new. It was called a Taurus Judge, which is a revolver, but it is self-defense porn. You can crossload this with 45 long Colts and 410 shotgun shells. These people have no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> they would know w which recycling bin the shotgun shells go in. <laughs> Was he, was he showing you this gun because he was proud of it, or was he showing it to you to say, you know, take care of my daughter because I have all this firepower? Well, if he wanted to say that, he could have pointed to the shotgun at the front door. <laughs> oh, man. But that's not what he wanted to say. What he okay. wanted to say was, you know, this is important to me. This is, this is something that I hold dear. This is the piece of me. And he was presenting it like, you, you know... I love OU football, I'm wearing an OU football hoodie. If I had a, a football that was signed by Bob Stoops or Sam Bradford or Baker Mayfield, I would present it in much the same way. Right. So I took it from him, said, cool. And then I handed it back. That was not the last time you and, and this guy would have a gun-related adventure, though, right? Because then you end up going to a gun show in Oklahoma with him where you guys are there to pick out a gun for you to have. Did you want to own a gun or were you just trying to kind of like stay in this guy's good graces because you're, you're dating his daughter, he's gonna be your father-in-law, that whole thing? So at the time, I had got to know everything I could about guns because this was something that he would talk with me about and we would talk great length and we, I, not we, I decided that Lizzie could not be the only thing that we have in common. And he didn't care about football, right? That's, that's my wheelhouse. So what he would talk about was his pistol. So I wanted to know more about pistols. So I learned as much as I could about pistols. And at one point, it was just, hey, you can't have all these accusations and all these opinions without owning a firearm. Were you trying actively to talk to him about like your experience as a black man in this country and what guns often being held by the police or suspicious white people who think they're, you know, standing their ground and that sort of thing, what that experience is like for people of color and for you. He's a white guy. He's super pro-gun. Like, did you even, were you even able to engage in that conversation before the point where you went out and agreed to, like, own a gun? No, but we did continue to talk about it, even when he would get irritated with me, and frankly, I would get irritated with him. But that doesn't mean that I don't listen to what he has to say, and he didn't listen to what I had to hmm. say. And that's one of the reasons why this, this journey, this book, this odyssey was so important is because it's not enough for me to say that I'm afraid. I have to know why he's afraid. Hmm. I have to know why this is something that he holds dear so that he can understand why it's something that I might be against. So yeah. let me meet him where he is, figure out why he believes what he believes, unpack what I believe, and then begin the dialogue again. We're talking to R.J. Young. His book is Let It Bang. This is Livewire Radio from PRI, and we will be right back. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy, 
Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We're talking about hand-me-downs this week, and we have R.J. Young here. He is the author of Let It Bang, A Young Black Man's Reluctant Odyssey into Guns. Uh, R.J.'s uh, girlfriend's dad and then later father-in-law, a gun enthusiast, uh, wanted them to bond over guns, and so uh, RJ started learning about them and ended up learning a lot about this world. You went to a gun show to, to pick out a gun that he was gonna buy you, and uh, I, I, somebody said to you there that Obama was selling even more guns for them than Clinton had sold for them because of the fact that there are a lot of people in this country who are, live in constant fear that the government, and specifically people like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, want to actually come take their guns. Where do you think that fear comes from, having been around people who think that way? People are always afraid of what they don't understand. I walk around a contradiction, and I think a lot of people walk around believing that they don't have to run into me so they can have a feeling about me and the way that I might exist in the world that's not true. You know, uh, for the folks that are listening, my, my hair is locked. It's braided. I have 18 tattoos. You know, I wear hoodies. I wear Jordans. But what folks don't get is I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm a PhD student. I wrote a book. So you contain these contradictions. And I have to admit, when I, when I got the book, I was like, oh, this is going to be a story about a guy who uh, is not part of gun culture, who immerses himself in gun culture and realizes he wants nothing to do with gun culture. And this is not really the story of, of your experience with this. I mean, you really became fascinated with guns and the mechanics of them and also how to operate them. I mean, you really got into this. Yeah, well, that's also just personality-driven. I wish I could say that that was like a journalistic intent, but what it was <laughs> was I felt insulted by how bad I was at shooting. <laughs> so this was just competitiveness. And the basic question I wanted to answer outside of how good can I be and I need to be better than anybody I know is, are they right to say that a good guy with a gun is better than a bad guy with a gun? Yeah. And, and you say at the end of the book, you kind of mentioned in passing that you think it's important. It's important for you to defend your Second Amendment right or to have a Second Amendment right. And I was curious about that. Why do you, why do you think that's important? I think there are some pretty compelling arguments about how the sort of guns flowing everywhere in this country are pretty bad, particularly for young men of color. I'm wondering how you, how you square those two realities for yourself. Second Amendment is part of the Bill of Rights. I don't get to pretend like that doesn't matter. Hmm. And that 
Folks who look just like me were stripped of that same set of rights for a very long time. So I'm not the person to say, let's go start monkeying with the Bill of Rights and say what is right and what is wrong in it. Mm. I'm also not obliged to forget that my country went into folks' houses who looked just like me and stripped them of their firearms, made it illegal for me to own a gun because they were afraid of me. So I don't shoot anymore. So you've got these, uh, you, you own a couple guns and you're extremely skilled with them, but you don't carry them. They just stay in a safe at your house. Why don't you carry them? Because I'm not safer with a gun. Yeah. I, statistically, but also morally. One of the things that I wrote about in this book was folks buying self-defense firearm insurance, which is insurance against perhaps murdering someone. Because if you shoot someone in self-defense, you might not be criminally liable. But anybody you shoot, bad guy or not, has family that loves them, and they will sue you. So knowing all of that, I don't want to be the person whose cocktail party question is, so what's it like to shoot that guy? Yeah. To kill that person. Yeah. And I don't want to put my family in that kind of position. And I get to say that, right? I don't have children. You know, I don't think whether or not I'm going to have to protect my family. I think about somebody needs to break into my house to steal my TV, which is a trope. And nobody's going to break into your house and steal your TV. But <laughs> they're very heavy. Even yeah. the new ones. They're thin yeah. but heavy. Yeah, that's true. If you're going to do that, I choose to believe you need it more than I do. And there's nothing in my house worth shooting you over. Do you feel like this had the intended effect in terms of winning your father-in-law's sort of approval? Or did it end up changing you more than it changed him? So one of the coolest parts of this journey was I got so good with firearm that when I go to take my certification test, I score a perfect 100. And my instructor told me, I only had only one other guy do that, and he's ex-military. So you're the first civilian who's done this. Wow. And I was able to bring that back to Charles. And he was very, very proud of me. You know, it's one of those things where he, he holds up the target I used. You know, and he counts the shots and so forth. And it's a really big deal because at this time, I'm, I'm the man's son. And that was, that was a very proud moment for a son whose father-in-law bought him his first gun. Mm-hmm. Not unlike a lot of kids who are 12, 10 years old get bought their first 22. Do you feel like you're at any time caught between two worlds? Yes. It, I mean, uh, resoundingly so. But you judge people based on what they are willing to tell you and their stories. And from their stories, you'll get such depth. Hmm. You'll come to understand people in a way that they want to be understood. I just walk around believing that. So, yeah, you seem like somebody who, who you, you want, you're, you're taking a sort of experiential approach to life, um, which I think if more of us did that, I think we would have a more nuanced view of things. Because, and I'm guilty of this uh, as much as anyone. I think we tend to sit back in the echo chamber that is our preconceived notions, and we don't really get out there and, and, and actually experience the world. And I think that's what gives you a nuanced view, which is not always convenient, but it's real. If I may. Please. Be brave. That's that's it. It is 
This book was me going to a place where I was uncomfortable for a very long amount of time before I got comfortable and I found my way. But you have to be brave. RJ Young, everybody, the book is Let It Bang. Hey, it's Luke. Do not go anywhere because coming up, we have John Hodgman explaining why he decided to grow a beard. As I say in the book, every every person who can grow a, a beard or a mustache or facial hair, they want to see what's in there, what's going to come out of their face when they stop taking care of themselves. They want to see. <laughs> and by the way, the person that was inside of John, apparently, that he found when he grew the beard, well... You just got to hear who was secretly living inside of John Hodgman. That is coming up very soon right here on Livewire from PRI. Stay with us. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines suggests one more taste of summer. Alaska Airlines now offers low fares on nonstops from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Plus, included in that low fare is assigned seating, over 400 free movies and TV shows, and power outlets at your seat in case your battery is low and the movie isn't over. Aloha, Alaska Airlines. All right, here on Livewire, we bring in guests from all over the world to be part of the show. But of course, Portland, the Rose City, is full, and I mean full, of interesting folks. And we like to try to meet one each week. We call this segment our new fascinating friend. Let's get one out here right now. Please welcome Fabi Reina to Livewire. Um, we, we have you here because you're not only um, part of tonight's musical act, but also because you founded, as far as we know, the only music magazine dedicated exclusively to female guitar and bass players. It's called She Shreds. Yes. How long ago did you found it? Uh, that was five years ago. Yeah. What was going on where it crystallized in your mind, I got to start a magazine for female guitarists and bass players? It turned into a magazine mainly because when I was a teenager, I would go to the grocery stores and I would, I would pick up all the guitar magazines and I was like, wait a minute, like once I got old enough, I was like 16 or something and I was like, there, I, there's, I don't see myself in here. Like, I don't see myself as a woman, I don't see myself as Mexican, I don't see myself as a queer woman um, of color. And so I guess it really just came out of wanting to create a community and wanting to really vocalize and distribute just kind of that community and making sure that more and more people knew that that was available to them as an option. I've looked at this magazine. It's really legit. Like, it yeah. has become quite a thing. What else did you expect? I don't... I'm, <laughs> well, let me, let me just say... That's fair. That is fair. What I mean is, people, whatever their background might be, don't usually uh, have a sense of how hard it is to pull something off and make a real, like this has turned into something quite amazing. Was that always your goal? Did you always have that in mind? Or did you think it was gonna be more like a zine or what? Like what was your aspiration for this magazine when you started? 
I would say that my goal and my aspiration from when I started is the same as it is now. I, I want to continue to have fun with it and I want to continue to learn. And it's my form of education, you know. I, I, I failed in high school. I essentially was one of the kids that people predicted to not succeed. And I turned into the complete opposite. I turned into the success story. And people who see me from high school today, are they can't believe it. You know, they, <laughs> really? they really can't. But you can learn and you can educate others in different ways. Just because you learn differently doesn't mean that you can't be respected as a guitarist or as a writer or as a journalist. You know, there's so many different forms. And so for me, it continues to be about having fun and about expanding and evolving a conversation. Yeah. And if we were to crack a cover of one of the most recent couple issues of She Shreds, what would we, what would we get to see, what would we get to experience? Well, you definitely get to experience, you know, the tabs. They're like a language for learning how to play a guitar, like someone else's song. But like there's some guitar language like tabs, and there's also language that anyone can understand, like interviews and perspectives and stories from women that um, are guitarists and bassists, but that anyone can relate to, you know. We, ha we have stories from um, the, the history of mariachi, but told from the perspective of how women have impacted it from 19 since 1903. Wow. You know, that totally changed my life, and it's one of the reasons why I'm here doing what I'm doing right now. It gave me that, really, that visibility. So, you know, you get that as well as the indie, and you get the metal version of that, of that and, you, and, you know, you get the 19-year-old guitarist that's out there just, like, figuring out, and you get that perspective, and you kind of realize, actually, that all of these genres play together to bring together an experience for each other. You know, it, people think that genres are its own category in the world, when in reality, they're all working together to create the same experience. And of course, it's a woman-led magazine that's finally gonna make that available to guitar players. Totally. Like a, you know? Yes. Like, not to toot our own horn, but. Well, yeah, and one of the biggest things is that historically, in the past 30 to 40 years or whatever, we're told culture is one way. Culture is led in one specific direction. And we're here to say, like, look at all these other cultures that you had no idea about, but that all are here under the same roof of guitar and music, you know? How did you start playing guitar? So I was uh, raised an only child by a single mom. And um, she was based, she had like three or four jobs. She was like, just go to all the extracurricular activities. Like, please, just go to them. And I literally was like in everything, like every sport, art, whatever. And um, when I turned nine, she put me in this camp called Natural, Natural Ear Music Camp in Austin. And like, I just was obsessed with it. Well, it seems to be paying off, and I don't know how much of the credit you and the other folks who helped make She Shreds, but uh, there's a new study by Fender, the guitar maker. 50% of today's beginner and aspirational guitar players are female, mm -hmm. according to what they're finding. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, you, I, I would imagine that you must hear from, from women of all ages who read the magazine and have that experience that you would have loved to have had when you were starting out playing. I mean, that must just be like a really almost emotional thing to hear sometimes. Yeah, well, I think like it's the most emotional thing, just how quickly things have changed. You know, I, I kind of always tell people, when we, when, even when I started, I'm 27, and five years ago, this same companies were asking me if women actually played guitar. And the same companies are now telling me, like, oh, did you know that they're the fastest growing demographic? And I'm like, yeah. Wait, so Fender's not the good guy in this story? <laughs> 
would say, you know, Fender, like, they have the resources and they have the chance to prove that women play guitar. So good on them for doing that. You know, and, and I think for me, it's just like so amazing that people are making that effort, not just people at our level, but, but brands and, and corporations are putting the money and the investment of time into people like me. And so, um, and so that's extremely emotional and extremely exciting. And, pe and people of all ages, not just women, are coming to me and coming to those brands that are making an effort saying, thank you. You know, it's like we've always known this. And, and it's too bad that we need numbers, tangible numbers, to, make, to, to see some kind of action. But at least we have some kind of legitimacy behind our... We're not crazy, <laughs> essentially, you know? Yeah. Um, so it makes, it makes my, com my community just feel that much stronger. Fabi Reina, our new fascinating friend. We are talking about hand-me-downs this hour, and when you hear that someone's parents handed them down a vacation home, like happened to our next guest, you might get some fancy ideas, but that is not the kind of house John Hodgman inherited. This house is small, it's located next to a bog with no garbage service, and the possibility of serial killers hiding in the basement. Nonetheless, Hodgman and his family have been going to the house for years. It's just one of the settings in his amazing book, Vacation Land. Please welcome John Hodgman back to Livewire. Hello. This book is so great. Thank you very much. And you sort of cover two topics in the forward of the book. Yes. Why you have a beard, yes. which is essentially because uh, you can and also you've given up. That's true. And then you also, you prepare the reader uh, for the reality that there are no made up facts in this book. That's right. Um, I like it when you're telling us about real things in your life. I find it so fascinating. Thank you very much. And I think your beard That's is... That's all I have left. <laughs> so and I'm your glad beard is nice. You, you are so yeah. uh, just sort of dismissive of your... What do you say? Your beard is like if you, you invented a teleportation machine. Uh, <laughs> That's my reference to the Jeff Goldblum movie, The Fly. Yeah. What if I were a mad scientist who had developed a teleportation pod, and I got into the pod to experiment on myself, not realizing that hiding in the pod was an actual man with an actual beard. <laughs> and, when I, and when I came out the other end, we had fused into this horrible, withered, half-bearded chimera that I am. <laughs> There's no reason for me to have to describe my beard on the radio or on the page. No one can see it, but I feel the need to confess <laughs> all of the same. It's patchy, it's thin, it's asymmetrical. I don't know if I can say uh, pubic on public radio, but sure. It's not we'll edit in an L later. Sure. <laughs> so they'll just think you were talking about public hair. Yeah. Make sure you pledge to support public hair this season. <laughs> have, you have you ever grown a beard? I cannot, because as patchy as you think your beard is, uh, it is 
positively a hair suit compared to what I could do. I right. got nothing. This but is you mean, had to, but you had to try. Yes, the right. Thing, because. As I say in the book, every every person who can grow a, a beard or a mustache or facial hair, they want to see what's in there, what's going to come out of their face when they stop taking care of themselves. They want to see. <laughs> if I stop caring, who do I become? And, I, and as I say in the book, I didn't realize that uh, it turned out the secret man who lives inside of me is the uh, part-time bookkeeper for the Church of Satan. <laughs> Uh, I love the subtitle of this book, True Stories from Painful Beaches. Thank you. Because the, the book starts at this home in, in western Massachusetts that your parents bought at some point as sort of a getaway. But it yeah. sounds like they sort of spared every expense when choosing, <laughs> when choosing this house and its location. Yeah. It was, so so I, I am from the urbane region of uh, Boston called Brookline. Uh, in the eastern part of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Thank you for that smattering of applause. <laughs> it's true, if you're from Brookline, you don't know how to be enthusiastic. <laughs> I appreciate that, you're my people. But my, but my mom fell in love with uh, this, the, the rural western part of the state in the hills of western Massachusetts for various reasons, and they bought a, they bought a small house on, the, on a kind of damp slope next to a bog. Not, like on, in the shadow of other hills. <laughs> and the book kind of recounts uh, my adventures in three wildernesses that I don't belong to. One being rural western Massachusetts, where I spent a lot of my growing up. And then later, uh, coastal Maine, um, where my wife has instructed me that I will die. Uh, it's nice to know and then, where yeah. it's going to happen. And then and she the told you the day. Uh, no, she just shows me the envelope where she sealed the information. It's like, I have it written down. I'll let you know when you need to. Uh, and then the third wilderness would be the haunted forest of middle age that I am wandering uh, until I find the clearing in the middle and then fall down and die. So, um, so yeah, my, my mom passed away and we inherited this house. And we we're like, great, a house. Uh, what's a septic system? Like, what? How do things work? What's a gutter? How do you, How does that lawn stop growing? Like, I didn't know how. <laughs> all I had ever done was live in in apartments. You know, I I I'd lived with my parents, and then I uh, and then I had moved to New York City after college. And in New York City, you know, you're only living in a glorified dorm anyway. Like, if anything goes wrong in your apartment, you don't have to fix it, you don't have to uh, uh, clear a drain, you call some surrogate daddy to come and fix it for you <laughs> while, while you go to the local coffee shop and pretend you're still young. But all of a sudden we had this, and I had to learn how to take things to the dump and it was very traumatic. Oh my God, I love the chapter on the dump for so many reasons. One, I have had, the, the, not to give anything away, but you were under the impression that you needed to have a cover story for this dump as to where the garbage had come from because it was a different town's dump. Yeah, I was not under an impression. I knew the truth. We were breaking the law. <laughs> when, my, when my father gave me the keys to the house, he said, you, you have to go to the dump. And also, when they go to the dump and they, they ask you where you live, you have to lie to them. <laughs> and I don't want to lie. I don't want to break the rules. I'm an only child. All I ever want to do is follow the rules. I want to know what all the rules all are so I can follow them perfectly so that I'll be loved and adored by every human on earth. 
a I modest don't, plan. I don't want to be in a position where I am lying to a dumpman. That seems to me <laughs> likely disapproval. <laughs> but he explains because we were using the dump in the, in the other town and we we're supposed to go there. So I was supposed to say that, I, that we were staying with our friend Jackie in Coleraine, which was the neighboring town where the dump was. And we had a friend named Jackie, and we'd, we used to stay with her before we bought this house. That's how we started going to that dump. So I would, I would, so I would rehearse my story as I would drive to the dump. I was like, we're staying with my friend Jackie and Coleraine. We're staying with our friend Jackie and Coleraine. What's that? Oh, it's funny you should ask. We're staying with our friend Jackie and Coleraine. Nothing suspicious. I mean, I'd, out loud, I would rehearse it. And Just to I, hear how it sounded coming out of your see, mouth. Yeah, and I, and I knew that if I ever had to say it, I would be, I would be caught out and thrown into the garbage hole. <laughs> but I never had to say it, because they never asked. And then after seven years, though, something changed, which is that our friend Jackie died. <laughs> I know, it was very sad, very sudden. And I would be lying to you, though, if I did not think at that moment, oh, there goes my alibi. <laughs> uh, we're talking to John Hodgman. The book is Vacation Land. Um, you talk about Jonathan Colton, the writer yes. and musician. He's yes. been on this show. He is a, he's a national treasure. Don't tell him that I said this, but he is my best friend. Yeah, why is that? You, yeah, that's in the book. You say he ho you hope he doesn't find out that he's your best friend, but yeah. what do you, what, why are you... Why well, I'm you from Massachusetts, and he's from Connecticut. Crippling emotional reticence is what our, what our region was built on. It's, you guys, it's Yankee self-hatred and emotional closed-offedness. So I can't tell him how I feel. I can tell you. Okay. Well, I, I swear to not tell him. Thank you. But y you guys went out to do some cairn building? Yeah. <laughs> so, so Jonathan came to visit me in western Massachusetts, and he said, it's hot. Can we go swimming anywhere? And I said, well, yeah, there's a wonderful uh, part of the river where there's a swimming hole. You know, I see the locals there swimming all the time. And he goes, well, look, great, let's go there. I'm like, mm, I don't know if that's allowed. Uh, <laughs> I've never been invited by the locals to go. And he said, that's ridiculous. Come on, and we'll go. Tell them uh, you live with Jackie. Yeah, right. <laughs> They'll let you swim. Yeah, we went, we went down there <laughs> to the swimming hole, and there was no one around. But I still yelled into the woods, staying with Jackie and call rain. It's okay, I'm cool. Because as an only child, I don't tolerate ambiguity very well. I don't, if there aren't clear rules, right. I'm not, I don't feel comfortable. You know, that's why I never take a, a city bus, right? Because those things can go anywhere. <laughs> like, you get on the subway, it's on a track. You know where it's going. Even this, if the subway conductor does, does mushrooms in the morning for fun, like, you're going to die, but you're going to die between two stops that you know. City bus, you get on it. That guy does shrooms. You could end up blocks from your destination, which is really worse than death. So, so you and Colton are out. We're out there in the water, hole. and I'm feeling uncomfortable. A because we're I don't know where I'm breaking a rule, and B because I have my shirt off, which no ever. And then he goes, "What are those?" And I'm like, "Oh, those are the cairns, and they're these." Piles of stones, these artfully, this, this folk art that happens, and you see it on trails and in rivers and by, by ocean sides where people carefully stack rocks on top of rocks. And every summer it would happen in this part of Western Massachusetts. You would 
come down and just see cairns start to grow until there might be 30 or 40 or 50 or unimaginable numbers of them going back a mile down the shallow river and no one knew who made them and then the, the rains would come and wash them away and then they would be rebuilt and he said that's fantastic let's do that i'm like well i don't i don't think so. i don't know what the rule is <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if it's legal for a human to put a rock on top of another rock around here. <laughs> but I did it. We built those cairns and, the, and we built some beautiful cairns. And we built them, we, we built them all afternoon. And, and as I got into it, like we just became totally silent sitting next to each other, co-play, as we used to say in preschool. And you would just put the rocks on top of rocks and the rain came and we didn't even look up. And then the, the sunshine came out again. We just stacked them up for hours. We were high out of our minds. I should. <laughs> so then, did you think you were hallucinating when a Honda Civic came burning around the corner? Oh, as, of... as we were going back. That's right. I forgot a Honda Civic. We were going back, and I'm like, you know what, Jonathan? That was a great day. Thank you for that. And he said, no problem. I'm glad we, and I'm like, I'm glad we didn't get in trouble. And then all of a sudden this Honda Civic comes by and then it did this slow roll by us. Like it was checking us out. And then it went up the hill and turned around. I'm like, oh, that's funny. I was paranoid that they were going to say something hilarious. Right, Jonathan? And then they came back. They turned around, the Civic came back and it stopped. And I was like, we are, we're about, we got in trouble with the Cairn police. We're about to be <laughs> killed by some locals or some witches or something. I don't know what's going to happen. And they rolled down their window, and there were these three young people in there, and, and the two, two women and a guy. And, of course, it was the guy who said, are you Jonathan Colton and John Hodgman? <laughs> and I said, well, technically the billing is John Hodgman and Jonathan Colton, but... <laughs> it is so. It's like, this is so weird. What are you, what are you doing here with your shirt off? <laughs> And I was like, well, you know me, man. I'm just building some cairns, you know? <laughs> He's like, that's cool. I'm like, yeah, that is cool. I'm a cool guy. <laughs> John Hodgman, everybody. Get the book, Vacation Land. It is delightful. Uh, we need to take a very quick break. We have John Hodgman here. This is Livewire Radio from PRI, and we will be right back. Hey, we want to say a special thanks this episode to Andrew John of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Sharon Gavin of King City, Oregon. Why are we thanking Andrew and Sharon? Well, it's simple, folks. Andrew and Sharon are part of the Livewire member community. And they are generously supporting this show with a donation each month. Andrew and Sharon, thank you for supporting Livewire. This is, I'm not kidding, the way that we are able to do the show. Livewire is a nonprofit, and it takes folks like Andrew and Sharon uh, to keep making the show possible week in and week out. So thank you so much for donating. Thanks for making Livewire possible. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. My name's Luke Burbank. We got Elena Passarello over there. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and we have John Hodgman here. All right, John, you write in your book, Vacation Land, about the fact that you are an only child. 
You call it being a member of the Worldwide Super Smart Afraid of Conflict Narcissist Club. I'm a certified instructor, by the way, too. Yeah. <laughs> Fourth degree black belt. That's right. Uh, you also are a professional advice giver via your fine podcast, Judge John Hodgman, and Thank also you. your uh, New York Times column. So we wanted to see if we could sort of meld these two skills of yours together and test them in a segment that we like to call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical. John, this segment is a kind of a twist on what we usually do. Um, we have a series of advice questions for you that have been submitted by real-life only children. Oh. They were very eager to answer. They just wanted yeah. to have someone to talk to. Oh, yeah. Let me, let me guess. You asked, hey, only children, do you have something to say? And they're like, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you ask me before? <laughs> So these are questions All right, that Let's are go. submitted by actual only children, yep. and, uh, and we'd like to get your, your advice to them on this. Should only children be allowed to bring a friend along on a family vacation? Oh. Um, sure. Why not? I don't think it would ever happen. I mean, if there were a weirdly ambitious only child who wanted to share something, <laughs> I think that that's something you should encourage. Elena, you're an only child of sorts. I mean, you... I am definitely an only child. Yeah. I mean, I have brothers, but... <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I've... A slight, slight, slight protest over here. I, <laughs> I always lived in the house by myself. I have half-brothers that live oh, okay. uh, gotcha. much, much younger than I am. Gotcha. So I, the only other sibling I had in-house was a dog oh. who was a bastard. <laughs> uh, How yeah. dare you take my parents' attention away from me, dog? Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me pose this question. From another actual only child, how do only children learn healthy competition outside of having done sports in high school? Is it too late for me as a 38-year-old? Well, yeah, that's I mean, that's true that the reason that only children are afraid of conflict is because they have no rehearsal of conflict, because they have no siblings to fight with them. Um, uh, and if they don't do... I mean, I, I am not a person who understands sports... But I understand that there is a value to sport that was lost on me, which is that you get to go out there and rehearse conflict and learn that it is not fatal. And if, if you don't learn that conflict is not fatal, then you grow up worrying that any kind of emotional confrontation is fatal, including hugging and kissing people. Like, that's scary. So, since it, but it is too late for a 38... Well, I mean, I don't know. You could take up a sport now, I suppose. But if you have an only child... Mm. Um, and you want to instill them with the metal that is forged through uh, backbiting competition, put them in a youth orchestra. <laughs> Make them play viola. That'll soften them up. Uh, here's a question from an only child. My wife is very possessive about her body care products. It is weird to me because we do all of our finances jointly. So it's not like I'm stealing from her, but she gets upset if I use her nice lotion from time to time. Since I never had to compete for resources, I think this is ridiculous and even petty. Can I just use them when she is not looking? <laughs> this one is from me. 
I'm not going to respond to the only child. I'm going to respond to the only child's spouse and say, get a lawyer. (laughs) Your husband wants to steal your creams. (laughs) Shut it down. Okay, last question from an, an actual only child. Do only children ever master the high five? Oh. Well, I can only speak from personal experience and say one in nine times I get it. (laughs) Like a lot of only children, I have definitely studied up. (laughs) I've I've read a lot of books on (laughs) high-fiving. But my, my real life on the ground sure, experience. Your learned experience is not. With, with celebrating mutual victory is very low. <laughs> well, I will deliver to you the public radio version of a high five, which is excellent job on the book. Thank you and very thank much. Thank you for being on our show. John Hodgman, everybody. The book is Vacation Land. This is Livewire. Our musical guest this hour plays in a style that's sort of a hand-me-down from some different forms, but it results in something new and amazing and unlike anything I've heard. Uh, You're going to dig this. Their self-titled album is out now. Please welcome Savila to Livewire.
Thank you very much. Muchísimas gracias a toda la raza que están aquí esta noche. Aquí estamos con ustedes. Thank you so much. We're Savila. Savila, right here on Livewire. Well, that is going to do it for our show, everybody. Thanks to our guests, John Hodgman, RJ Young, Fabi Reina, and Savila. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And our marketing associate is Christian Sager. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thank you, as always, to the fine folks at Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by Work for Art and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we would like to thank member Debbie Lusk of Portland, Oregon, for her support. If you want to get more information about our show or how you can track down our podcast or get our newsletter, head over to LiveWireRadio.org and we will be waiting for you. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International